thank you. I forgot. I forgot that there it is. Oh, thank you very much. To, uh, it's a great privilege for me to have this opportunity. I feel kind of bad because I'm like coming in right as we start, and then as soon as we're over, I've got to go to the airport. So I, I really enjoy visiting with people, getting to meet them, and and uh, get to know them at least just a little bit. But uh, time will not allow for much of that this trip. I do apologize, but. I'm, Honored to be here. Thank you so very much. Uh, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We'll read verses 19 through 31. This is a message I've entitled Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Beginning in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if someone were to rise from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. On many levels, this is a jarring, disturbing graphic uh, passage of scripture but I trust as we work our way through this text that we will see for us as believers this is actually a very encouraging passage of scripture for us now there is some debate as to exactly what this is is this a real event in history the rich man was a real individual Lazarus real individual and both of them are in their respective eternal places as we speak Or was this a parable that Jesus taught? And there's some evidence for both positions here. Uh, It is situated amongst other parables that Jesus was teaching, which lends weight to the uh, belief that this is indeed a parable. However, if it is a parable, it is unlike any of Jesus' other parables. Because here Jesus gives us specific names. And he doesn't do that in any of his other parables, but here he does. He names 
Lazarus. He names Moses. He names Abraham. So if it is a parable, it is unlike any of his other parables. And I believe by the inclusion of these specific names, Jesus is driving home to us the very stark realities of what happens to someone when he or she dies outside of Christ. Now, let me set up the scene here just a little bit for context. Look back just one page probably in your Bibles to chapter 15. As chapter 15 opens, verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he began to teach them in parables. So as chapter 15 opens, there's a large group of people that had gathered around Christ. Scribes, Pharisees, tax collectors, sinners of every stripe. So a large group of people had gathered around Christ as chapter 15 opens. But look at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, now he was also saying to the disciples... So as chapter 15 opens, a large group of people had gathered around Christ. But as chapter 16 opens, Jesus turns his attention away from the crowd and he begins addressing only his disciples. He's no longer talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the tax collectors. He's talking only to his disciples as chapter 16 opens. But then look at verse 14. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of what? money were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at him. So even though Jesus had turned his attention away from the crowd, was now addressing only his disciples, notice who never left the scene. The Pharisees were still there, eavesdropping, if you will, and kind of in the background, eavesdropping on what Jesus was saying. They never left the scene. And the Bible says that the Pharisees were lovers of money money. And so what Jesus is about to teach here would have absolutely scandalized the Pharisees. So let's work our way back through this text. Jesus says there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence. Purple was a very difficult color to manufacture 2,000 years ago. No big deal, of course, today. But back then, purple was a hard color to manufacture. It was very labor-intensive. It was actually derived from the oil of snails. And so uh, if you had a garment that was colored purple back then, you were a man of means. You had some wealth. But notice here, it says that this guy habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. So apparently this guy had not only a a single garment colored purple, he had a whole wardrobe full of purple clothing, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence. This man had everything that the world could offer. Purple linen, uh, joyously living in splendor every day. He had every, this was the Elon Musk of the ancient world. Okay, he had it all. Opulence. Verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, 
covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. The picture here is the exact opposite. The rich man had everything that the world could offer. Lazarus had absolutely nothing. Notice that the text says that, the, that Lazarus, the poor man, was laid at the rich man's gate. Lazarus didn't go there on his own. Lazarus was laid there. Lazarus was crippled. Lazarus was picked up, carried, and laid at the rich man's gate. He couldn't even move about on his own. And wherever Lazarus was laid, that's where Lazarus stayed. Covered with sores, open, oozing, diseased, infected sores. Body was covered with them. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Lazarus was poor, he was crippled, he was diseased, and he was starving. Undoubtedly, Lazarus looked like a skeleton with skin draped over it. Diseased skin at that. And then, as if it couldn't get any worse, it says, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And dear friends, when we read dogs in the New Testament, don't think about some happy little Maltese with a little bow in its hair. These weren't pets. These were wild dogs. And they were licking Lazarus, not to comfort him, but they were tormenting him. He couldn't get away from them. This is a graphic, jarring, disturbing picture. And you could not have two more polar opposites. And notice, we don't know the name of the rich man, but we do know the name of the poor man, Lazarus. That's for a reason. Lazarus is derived from the name Eleazar, which literally means God helps. That's what Lazarus means. God helps. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you think God helps those who help themselves, as in the Bible. It's not. A lot of people think that it is. I was watching Bill O'Reilly one night several years ago. He was talking to some priest, and he said, My favorite Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves. Not only is that not in the Bible, it's not even a biblical concept. Dear friends, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who understand that they cannot help themselves. Lazarus could do nothing for himself physically. He was completely helpless, as helpless as a newborn baby. He couldn't even move on his own. He was completely and totally dependent upon the mercies of others for his physical survival. And just as helpless as Lazarus was physically, you and I are that helpless spiritually. Lazarus could do nothing for himself physically. You and I can do nothing for ourselves spiritually. There is nothing that we can do. There is there's no amount of good works that we can perform to earn our place into heaven. There's nothing that we can do to ingratiate ourselves to the thrice holy God whose wrath burns against sin. 
We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all broken his laws. We are liars. We are thieves. We are blasphemers in word and deed. We are adulterers at heart at least. We have all broken God's laws thousands of times. And just like when we break laws on earth, there's a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of God. But because we have sinned against God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And if we die in our sin, we will very rightly, very justly, go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. And no amount of good works will change that fate. Our works are as filthy rags before our thrice holy God. We can do nothing for ourselves spiritually. Lazarus could do nothing for himself physically. We're completely dependent upon the mercies of God. Back to the text. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Death is the great equalizer. Dear friends, it does not matter how much you have or how little you have. It does not matter who you know or who knows you. It does not matter on which side of the tracks you were raised. Death is coming for us all. Death is an appointment we will all one day meet. Ain't none of us getting out of this thing alive. Death is coming for all of us. It is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. Now when Lazarus died, no big surprise, right? I mean, he was at death's door anyway. No big surprise when Lazarus died. But apparently the rich man died at about the same time. That's the sense you get from the text. Undoubtedly, death came as quite as the, quite the surprise to the rich man because life was good. I mean, he was habitually dressing in purple linen, fine clothing, joyously living in splendor every day. The world was his oyster. Life was good for the rich man. And yet death came to him too. And apparently at about the same time it did for Lazarus. Dear friends, death is an appointment we will all one day meet. And sometimes that appointment may come at the most unexpected of times. We must be ready to meet that appointment. Don't wait. Don't think I'll get right with the Lord later. Be ready now. Because we never know when that appointment is coming. Now, when the rich man died, undoubtedly he had a very nice funeral. His body was well taken care of. It was anointed with some oils and spices and wrapped in some nice linen and laid in a very nice ornate tomb. There was probably a, a big ceremony there. There was probably some real important people there. They probably gave some real fancy speeches over the body of the rich man. Very nice funeral the rich man had. Lazarus? No fancy funeral for Lazarus. Undoubtedly, what happened to Lazarus' body is the same thing that happened to the bodies of all of the poor and the diseased and the sick back in that day. Undoubtedly, Lazarus' body was simply picked up and carried outside of the city gates and dumped. 
in a pile of garbage to be consumed by fire, burned, or wild animals, or some combination of all of that. No fancy funeral for Lazarus. No important people there at Lazarus' funeral. No flowery speeches for Lazarus. But notice in the text, notice who his pallbearers were. It says that he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. You know, dear ones, one of these days when I die and my funeral is held, I don't care what is said at my funeral. I don't care what you say about me. I don't really much care what you do with my body. You can cut my toes off if you want to. I won't, I won't know it. But you know what? I want these pallbearers. I want these pallbearers. I want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Dear friends, when your time comes, when your funeral comes, you want these pallbearers. The only way to have these pallbearers is to be in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be in Christ. You must repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and place your trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. All of us stand under the judgment of God. All of us stand under his wrath. But God made a way for us to escape his wrath. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus lived as the perfect man, the God-man, one person, two natures, truly God, truly man. And as the God-man, Jesus lived a life of perfect satisfaction to the perfect pleasure of God. And Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken. He gave it. And on the cross, this perfect person offered his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God. Died on the cross. Three days later was bodily raised from the dead proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And the only way to have the wrath of God removed is to repent of sin, turn from sin, and place your trust in Christ, in him and him alone. Then and only then will you have these pallbearers. Then and only then will you be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Then and only then Will you one day hear those words, well done, good and faithful doulos. Well done, good and faithful slave. I want these pallbearers. You want these pallbearers. You must be in Christ. Turn from your sin, place your trust in him, and then you too will be carried away by the angels. To Abraham's bosom. Verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue 
for I am in agony in this flame. This is a condemning verse of scripture for the rich man. There's so much here, but notice first, send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. Sometimes I wonder, do we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to people when they die in their sin? Do we really believe that they go to this place? Do we really believe that they spend all of eternity, all of eternity, not outside of the presence of God? I, I hear preachers so many times say, if you die in your sin, you'll be eternally separated from Christ. That's not entirely true. Do you know what the most terrifying thing about hell is? God. Christ. Because he's there. He is there in his wrath. Read Revelation chapter 14. Those who are in the lake of fire says they will be tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The full undiluted fury of God's wrath will be poured out day and night on the condemned. The smoke of their torment will rise up forever and ever. It'll never end. The worm will not die. The fire will not be quenched. There will be wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. People in hell are separated from God relationally. There is no relationship there. There is no love exchange there. There is no fellowship there. They are separated from God relationally, but judicially, judicially, they will be in the presence of God for all of eternity as his wrath is poured out. Do we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to people who die in their sins? When I think about hell, my circuit breakers trip, I I just, I cannot I can't comprehend it. But I believe it. Why? Because God says it's real. And if we do believe this, why are we not out there more in the highways and the hedges telling people how to escape this place? Look at else, what else he said. The rich man. The rich man cried out and he said, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, this is a condemning admission from the rich man. He somehow had this ability to see across this great chasm and he saw Abraham, he saw Lazarus and he he saw Abraham and recognized him, called him by name, even gave him a title of respect, Father Abraham. Father Abraham, what does that tell us? That tells us that the rich man was a religious man. This was not some atheist. This was not some guy that worked for people for the American way, you know, some atheist organization. No, this was a religious man. This was a man who had been taught the scriptures. This was a man who 
had a head full of knowledge of the word of God. Saw Abraham, recognized him, gave him a title of respect. Father Abraham. He was religious. He knew the scriptures. What's he doing in hell? Dear friends, I am the first one in my ministry to champion the study of doctrine. Study the word of God. Study scripture. Study doctrine. Study theology. Fill your mind with the word of God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. But make sure in your studying, make sure that your head knowledge has penetrated your heart. Because there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of head knowledge about the word of God. And yet that head knowledge has not penetrated their hearts. There's going to be a lot of religious people in hell. There's going to be a lot of professing, professing Christians in hell. There's going to be a lot of theologians in hell. There's going to be a lot of pastors in hell. Make sure that head knowledge has penetrated your heart. It had not penetrated the heart of the rich man. Because not only did he recognize Abraham, who else did he recognize? Lazarus. It's not that he didn't know Lazarus had been laid at his gate. Oh, he knew it. Not only did he know it, he even knew his name. But even now, Lazarus is nothing more than his errand boy. Notice that there is no apology from the rich man. The rich man says nothing like, Lazarus, I'm so sorry. Lazarus, I'm so, please forgive me, Lazarus. No apologies from the rich man. The fires of hell do not bring about repentance. The rich man is just as hardened, if not more so, in his sin now than he was on earth. The rich man would not lift a finger to help Lazarus on earth. But now, you see, now the rich man wants Lazarus to lift his finger, touch it in water, to cool off his tongue. Lazarus is nothing more than his errand boy. The rich man had a head full of knowledge, but that knowledge had not penetrated his heart. His heart was hard as stone. Make sure your head knowledge has penetrated your heart. The rich man did not have what Paul describes. In fact, I preached on this this morning. What Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that is a godly sorrow over sin. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. And the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow is quite literally the difference between hell and heaven. It is the difference between a false professor of Christ in a true child of God. A worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death, eternal death. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. A worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow over sin that, that says this, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, 
but because we don't want the consequences of it. What would happen to me if my employer knew that I was taking a little home on the side, you know, I, I wasn't being honest at work? What would, be, what would be the consequences to me? What would happen to me if my spouse knew who I was texting on my phone? What would be the consequences to me if people knew what I was looking at on the computer? And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but simply because we don't want the consequences of it. But if we could get away with it, you see, if nobody would know what we're doing on the side, if nobody would know, we'd go right back to it because that's what we really want. That's what our flesh desires. A worldly sorrow leads to death. But then there's this other kind of sorrow over sin, and that is a godly sorrow. What is a godly sorrow over sin? Well, Paul says that a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. A godly sorrow over sin is that sorrow which is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And we do not want to grieve him. He has been so good, so kind, so gracious, so patient, so faithful to us, so merciful. That we don't want to grieve him. We understand that our sin grieves God and we don't want to grieve God. Now, I'm not saying that a Christian never sins. I'm not talking sinless perfection here. Christians can and do sin. But here's the difference, dear ones. Here's the difference between a true Christian and a false professor of Christ. A false professor of Christ can sin and enjoy it. A false professor of Christ relishes his sin, enjoys his sin, swims in his sin. A Christian can't do that. As a Christian, you and I can stumble into sin but we don't swim in it. We don't relish sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. We don't plan out our sin. When we do sin as Christians, it grieves us. It grieves us. Does your sin grieve you? It is good and it is right to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. It is good and it is right to want a Savior from hell. But dear friends, just as much as we should want a Savior from hell, we should want a Savior from our sin. There are a lot of people out there who want a Savior from hell simply because their conscience accuses them and they know that that's what they deserve. But few people truly want a Savior from sin. If you want a Savior from hell but not a Savior from sin then you have a savior from neither. Does your sin grieve you? It did not grieve the rich man. Sin does grieve the Christian. Verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony, the great reversal. 
On earth, the rich man had everything that the world could possibly offer. Lazarus had nothing. Now everything's been reversed. The rich man languishing in the lake of fire. Lazarus being comforted in Abraham's bosom. Euphemism, of course, for heaven. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Dear friends, when we die, we will each go to one of two places and we will be there for all of eternity. There are no second chances. There's no such thing as purgatory. That is a figment of the Roman Catholic Church. There's not a shred of biblical evidence that's fanciful place exists. It doesn't. We will each go to one of two places and we will be there for all of eternity. No coming back. Great chasm fixed. And by the way, that also puts an end to this notion, well, you know, my, my mom, my dad, my, my grandmother, you know, they, they're looking over me. They're watching, you know, they come back and talk to me from, no, their grandma's not coming back. Great chasm fixed. Verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Finally, the rich man is thinking about somebody besides himself. Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, to my father's house because I have five brothers so that he can warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And so reading between the lines here a little bit, apparently if Lazarus had come back and gone to the rich man's father's house and warned his five brothers, apparently reading between the lines here a little bit, apparently the five brothers would have also known who Lazarus was. They would have also recognized him. So it's not looking real good for the five brothers either. But notice again, there's still no apology. Lazarus is still nothing more than his errand boy. The rich man won't even address Lazarus directly. Send Lazarus. Won't even address him directly. No repentance, no sorrow. Hardened in his sin. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets had been dead for centuries. How could they possibly hear Moses and the prophets? This is how. This is how. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They have the word of God. Let them hear the word of God. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, no, 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 no. That's not enough. But if if they can just see someone come back from the dead, that'll get their attention. If they could just see Lazarus come back from the dead, then they'll believe, then they'll repent. If they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe even if someone were to come back from the dead. Dear friends, there is an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. 
not in miracles, not in signs and wonders. And yet there's this entire swath of professing Christianity. Please do note my use of the term professing Christianity. That has this emphasis on signs and wonders. And they say that's where the power of God is. We got angel feathers falling out of the sky. Gold dust appears in our Bibles and on our clothes. Maybe you've seen some of this. Uh, ooh, we got signs and wonders and people get slain in the spirit. And uh, then there was this thing that was going around about 20 years ago. Shockingly, it's even making a comeback now, I see. And people are saying, oh, God is turning people's tooth fillings into gold. Ooh, that's so dumb. Why would God even do that? I mean, if I've got a, you know, don't heal my tooth. I mean, don't forget turning my tooth fillings into gold. Just heal my stupid tooth and do that. You know, it's just nonsense. And Todd White claiming that he can lengthen people's legs by about a quarter of an inch. You know, he goes out on the streets and lengthens people's legs. You know, one leg's just about that much shorter than the other one. He commands a short leg to grow and it's all over you too. And like... That's a trick. He's just manipulating the angle, the, the tilt of a person's foot. That, that, that's a parlor trick. Hucksters have been doing that for decades. Todd White's just made it popular because of the advent of YouTube. It's in the power of God. This is deception. It's cheap parlor tricks. And then there's an, this entire other swath of professing Christianity. And it's not so much into the signs and wonders stuff, but it's more into the seeker-sensitive approach to doing church, market-driven approach to doing church. You know, we're going to make church fun. We're going to make church entertaining. And we're going to make our church look like the world so we can attract the world. And so we're going to have some, you know, rock music and strobe lights and fog machines and we're going to make our church look like a three-ring circus and we're going to entertain people and so we're going to attract the world with this worldly entertainment uh, because that's what they want and we're not going to talk much about sin we're not going to talk much about repentance that's just kind of debbie downer stuff because the world doesn't like to hear things like that so we're going to just tell them about how jesus can make their life better they'll just you know add jesus onto their life and you know a little hood ornament thing there and he'll make their life better and give them a purpose-driven life, more meaningful life, how to have more meaningful relationships. Jesus will enhance their life. We're going to make church fun. We're going to make our church cater to the world. That is a contradiction in terms. The church is not supposed to look like the world. We're the called out ones. We're not supposed to look like the world. And some of these pastors, if you were to ask them, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Oh, yeah. Yes, the Bible is the word of God. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I can tell you by how they preach and how they do church that they don't really believe it. Because if they really believed that the Bible was the word of God, they wouldn't be turning their churches into three ring circuses. They wouldn't be diluting the gospel. They wouldn't be apologetic for the claims that Christ makes. They wouldn't shy away from repentance. They wouldn't shy away from denial of self. They wouldn't shy away from taking up the cross. Oh, well, that's gonna, that kind of talk, that's going to 
that's going to keep people away. You know what? It will. Here's who it's going to keep away. That kind of preaching, the preaching of the true gospel, not the gospel of self-fulfillment, but the gospel of self-denial, that gospel will drive away the goats. But you know who it's going to attract? It's going to attract the sheep. Because sheep want to be fed. My sheep hear my voice. The clarion call of the gospel will draw the sheep. It will repel the goats, but it'll draw the sheep. In every few years, there's some new fad that comes down the evangelical pike. Some new, new shiny object in the, in the room that gets all the evangelicals' attention, gets them all excited. About 20 or so years ago, it was The Passion of the Christ. Remember that movie, The Passion of the Christ? People were all excited about The Passion of the Christ. Churches were renting out theaters. And everybody was going gaga over The Passion of the Christ. And the prayer of Jabez. Remember the prayer of Jabez? Praying the prayer. Remember that? Anybody still praying the prayer of Jabez? Of course not. Why not? Because it was a fad. And now it's the chosen. Everybody's all excited about the chosen. I choose not to watch the chosen. (laughs) Dear friends, there is an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. Not in miracles, not in signs and wonders. Not in seeker-sensitive, market-driven approaches to doing church. I heard people 20 years ago with the, the passion. They said it was the most. They said it was going to be the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Dear friends, losing my mic. Dear friends, I would submit to you that this book is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Not some dopey movie. There is an inherent power here that is found nowhere else. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. You want to see the power of God unleashed? Take this book out into the highways and the hedges. Share the gospel with people. That's the power of God. As I close, uh, I suppose every, uh, every preacher has an airplane story. And, uh, and I fly a lot, and I've got a lot of stories, a lot of things that have happened to me in airports, people I've talked to. But there's, there's one that just kind of stands out in my mind. And it was eight or nine years ago now. And I was flying. I don't even remember where I was going now. But uh, flying somewhere. And because of my handicap, they usually let me pre-board. I get on the plane first so I can get settled, and, and then all the other passengers start coming on. So this particular flight, I pre-boarded, and my seat was the very last row. I was down in the tail, right by the, the uh, bathrooms in the, in the tail of the plane, and I had an aisle seat. So the stewardess helped me get my crutches put away in the overhead and all, and, you know, put on my seatbelt and just kind of sat there, and, um, and then right after I sat down, then the other passengers start filtering onto the plane. And I'm just kind of casually sitting there, and I just kind of happen to look up the aisle, and I see this old, old man with a cane making his way down the aisle, and I happen to notice he's wearing a 
a navy blue baseball cap. And on the front, in big gold letters, WWII Veteran. And uh, I've always had a little bit of an interest in history. And my own grandfather was a World War II vet. And I saw him and I, and I just said a quick prayer. I said, Lord, please let him sit next to me. And wouldn't you know it, he came all the way down that aisle and his seat was right next to me, uh, the window seat. And I actually offered to slide over so he wouldn't have to climb over me. So, so I slid over and I was at the window, he was in the aisle. And he, you know, got his stuff settled. And, and after he did that for a, a minute or two, I introduced myself and, and I said, uh, my name's Justin, how are you? And he said, hi, Justin, my name's Fred. And I said, hey, Mr. Fred, and we shook hands. And, and, you know, some small talk, hey, how you doing, that kind of thing, where are you headed? And, um, and then I said, Mr. Fred, I see from your hat you're a World War II veteran. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, which theater were you in? In the European theater or Pacific? And he said, I was in Europe. And I said, oh, my grandfather was too. And, uh, and I said, well, what did you do? What was your job? And he said, I was in infantry. He was a soldier. And turns out he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he just starts telling me about stories that things that he experienced in World War II, being in combat. He told me about being in these trenches that they had dug and mortars, explosions going off around, bullets zinging over his head and all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I just listened to him and after a while I said, Mr. Fred, uh, did you ever wonder what would have happened to you if one of those bullets had had your name on it, where you would have gone? And he said, yes, Justin, I did. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, death is an appointment we will all one day meet. I said, when that time comes for you, Mr. Fred, do you know where you're going? And he said, no, I don't. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, can I share with you what the Bible has to say about that? And never as long as I live will I forget his response. He said to me, and I quote, I wish you would. And so for the next few minutes, I share with Mr. Fred the gospel, how we are all sinners, we have all broken God's laws. We stand under judgment, condemnation. If we die in our sins, we will go to hell because that's what our sins have earned. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, the God-man. And Jesus willingly gave his life on the cross. I told Mr. Fred, I said, Mr. Fred, his life was not taken. He gave it willingly. Died on the cross three days later, bodily raised from the dead. And I said, Mr. Fred, if you will repent of sin, turn from sin, and place your trust in Jesus and him alone, he'll save you. You'll pass from death to life. And I said, death is not something you need to fear anymore. And I explained all of this to him. I said, Mr. Fred, does that make sense? And he said, yes, Justin, it does. And I asked him if he had any questions. He did have a question or two. And I answered those for him and uh, I didn't I didn't pressure him okay Mr. Fred now pray this prayer after me I just made sure he understood the gospel and he said this he said he said Justin I want to thank you 
He said, I've never heard that before. You imagine this man who was in his, at the time, mid 80s or so, living in the United States of America. I've never heard that before. Turns out he was Catholic. Of course, you don't hear the gospel in a Catholic church. He said, I want to thank you. And then the lady in the seat in front of me, she kind of leaned her head back like this. And she said, and I want to thank you too. I was listening to every word you said. (laughs) For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Sola Scriptura. There is a power in God's word that is nowhere else. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day that has fallen from your hand towards us. I thank you for the privilege, Lord, even though it's a short, short time here, the privilege that is mine to be able to bring your word to these precious saints. We pray that as your gospel has been preached, that your Holy Spirit would do his work that only he can do would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Lord, if there be any here who have not yet heard the voice of the shepherd, who have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Christ, I pray that you would do that work in their lives right now. Convict them of their sin. Convict them of the truth of the gospel. Bring them to yourself. I pray for this church. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the leadership. The elders, I ask your richest blessings on these men, their families, and this body of believers, Lord. May Christ be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.